We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Mark 4. Jesus said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say this kingdom of God is like? Or what parables shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray. God, we come into this room this morning, and we are all over the spiritual map. Some of us, our hearts are just bursting as we sing these songs, and we are overwhelmed with the sense of your presence and your love and your goodness. And for others of us, it feels like you are so far away. God, some of us, we're here this morning, and this is our very first time in a church. And we can't believe we're here. And we have so many questions, so many doubts, so many objections as to why these things could ever be true. But God, we are, we are all over the place, and yet, in another sense, we're all in the same place. We all come as people who are more of a mess than we know, more in need of your grace and your mercy than we know, more in need of the hope and the life and the joy that you offer us in your Son than we know. And so we pray that you would come and speak, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our eyes to see, and that you would give us hearts that might feel all that you would have for us today in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, good morning. My name is Brent. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, would love to get to meet you after the service. Please come introduce yourself to me. I'd love to get to learn your name, as would Pastor Dave. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Um, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at the way of Jesus. And what we've been saying every week is that the way of Jesus is unlike any other way. That Jesus offers to you and me a life unlike any other life. And this passage this morning that we're looking at tells us why that is the case. Jesus tells two little stories about the kingdom of God. You say, wow, this is a really short passage. That must be a short sermon. No, don't, don't be fooled. Short passage. There is so much in here. 
These two little stories, my daughter actually told me the other day that I preach sermons that are too long. That's not what you want to hear from your kid. Um, (laughs) Jesus tells these two little stories about the kingdom of God. And you see, Christianity is not some new philosophy or some new morals that you just kind of take up into your life. No, Christianity is something that takes you up. And it takes you up into an entirely new realm, an entirely new kingdom. Life in Jesus' kingdom is a life unlike any other life because it changes everything about your life. It changes how you think about your money. And it changes how you think about your children. And it changes how you think about your marriage. And it changes how you think about your singleness. And it changes how you think about sex. And it changes how you think about the poor and the vulnerable, and the marginalized. And it changes the way that you think about your city. And it changes the way that you think about your suffering. It changes everything. It is a life in an entirely different realm, a whole new kingdom. And you see, Jesus gets at that by telling us two stories about the kingdom of God. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus told a lot of stories. In fact, um, when you read the Gospels, they were, they were his main teaching method. He told a lot of stories. If you're new to Christianity, uh, this is what, you might have heard the word parables. This is what Christians are talking about when we talk about the parables of Jesus. Jesus was always telling stories. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus used stories in his teaching. Because sometimes we don't know what to do with stories. We say, you know, give me a rule and I'll try to follow it. Give me a doctrine And I'll believe it. But Jesus tells us stories. Now, why does Jesus do this? I just, before we dive into this, I want you to think about this. Why does Jesus tell stories? Um, I've noticed something as a preacher. Uh, You may have noticed that we're one of these churches that we actually have outlines in our sermons, typically. And uh, we we work kind of hard to try to come up with something like pithy and you know, like something you can kind of like follow along with as we're going through the text. But I've, I've noticed something about my outlines. None of you remember my outlines. None of you remember them. And you want to know what's even funnier? I don't remember my outlines. Like if we get to Tuesday and I'm like, what was sermon, Sunday sermon on? I totally forget. People do not remember outlines. You know what they remember? Stories. Stories. God has wired our brains for stories. Stories have a power unlike any rule or doctrine. Stories engage our imaginations and they sneak past our defenses and they open us up in new ways to the way of Jesus and to the character of God and they do it in ways that don't just penetrate our heads but actually penetrate our hearts. And I think that that is especially true in these two little stories that Jesus tells in our passage today about the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Now these are the very first words of Jesus that Mark records in his gospel. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth are about the kingdom. And Jesus says, it has come. And I think that claim presents a question that every single person in this room has asked, maybe not explicitly, but at least implicitly, at some point in our lives. And the question is this, if the kingdom of God has come, 
then why is our world still so messed up? And let me make it even more personal than that. If the kingdom of God has come, why is my life still so messed up? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever wondered that? If God is real, why are things so hard? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And these two parables, they help to answer those two questions for us by telling us three things that reshape our understanding of how God's kingdom works in our world and in our lives. Here's where we're going today. These two parables tell us that the kingdom of God looks small and it feels slow but it is better than anything you can ever imagine. It looks small, it feels slow, but it is better than anything that any of us can, can imagine. So let's, let's start with this first point. The kingdom of God looks small. Now, Jesus, in both of these stories, he uses the metaphor of a seed. He says the kingdom of God is like a seed. You'd think he might say the kingdom of God is like a lightning bolt. That'd be a little cooler. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a hurricane. The kingdom of God is like this great war horse. You know, something big, something strong, something powerful, something glorious. But Jesus says, no, it's like a seed. And in fact, in the second parable, he says it's like a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is one of the tiniest of seeds. It takes about 750 mustard seeds to weigh a gram. Seeds are small. Seeds look insignificant. They look unimportant. They look unimpressive. They look unpromising. And this makes me think of a story about Banksy. Do you remember Banksy? I think he's still around these days. You don't hear about it as much. You know, Banksy is one of the, like, the most famous street artists in the world. Uh, he keeps his identity secret. And he shows up in various cities around the world and he creates these amazing pieces of art on the sides of building and he typically does it you know, incognito overnight. And some of his pieces have sold for tens of millions of dollars. I don't know if you remember this, but it was about, it was a little less than 10 years ago. One day he went to Central Park in New York City in disguise, totally incognito. And he set up a, a pop-up booth and he started selling signed pieces of his artwork. He listed them for $60 a piece. Guess how many people bought one? Two. Two people all day. E just two. Now, I want you to know, each of these pieces is like worth hundreds of thousands of dollars today. And yet, all day long, people walked right by it. And you know what they saw? They saw nothing. They saw nothing of real value, nothing of real significance, nothing of real importance. And you see, that is how the kingdom of God often looks. It looks like a seed. It looks insignificant. It looks small. It looks unimpressive. But think about a seed. You know, uh, it, looks, it looks like nothing, but if you put a seed in the ground and you give it a little bit of time... It grows into something that can tower over you. 
You know, it looks powerless, but you put a seed in the ground and you let it grow wrong enough and it will bust through concrete. And this is how the kingdom of God works. Now, this makes me think of the early church. You know, Jesus could have chosen very impressive people. He could have chosen all the somebodies. You know what he did? He chose a bunch of nobodies. He chose 12 disciples. And then he began to gather around them all of the social nobodies. Women. Children. The poor. People who are racial and ethnic outsiders. People who did not belong. People that you would have walked you would have walked by this group of people and you would have kept on walking. Nothing would have caught your attention. But you know what happened? The kingdom of God got a hold of them and it began to take root in their lives and it began to change them. And they began to live such live, lives of such radical love and joy, uh, joy and generosity and sacrificial love for their neighbor that history tells us Christianity began to spread through the first century like wildfire, and guess what? It's the reason you and I are sitting in this room this morning worshiping. It looks so small. It makes me think think not just of the early church, it makes me think of our church. Let me tell you, when we started, not an impressive bunch. Five people, they all had my last name, loved my family dearly. But we needed some more people in this thing. This was not looking very promising. This was in June of 2017. And in the fall of 2017, this church was about 30 people meeting in a Jewish synagogue. So grateful that place opened their doors to us. But for those of you, any who were around in those days, you know that place was not very impressive. And then we had our first service in March 2018. And let me tell you something, ever since we've been trying to do something that's pretty basic, it's not flashy, it's, 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 not, it's not all that impressive, it's pretty simple actually. We've been trying to love God and love one another and love our city. And every week we gather in this room on Sunday mornings to sing and to pray and to open God's word and to hear from him. And then we come to this really unimpressive table. Look at this. It's so small. It looks so insignificant. I mean, on the whole, it is pretty simple. There's nothing flashy. There is nothing flashy about this place. We don't have fancy lights. Our live stream is very grainy. Apologies to all of you who are watching right now. The audio doesn't work very well on that thing. But friends, look what God has done. I just want you to look around at what God has done. Look at, what, look at the church God has built and is building. And I can tell you countless stories of people's lives who have been changed. And ministries in this city that we have gotten to partner with and who have been impacted by your time and your generosity. This is how the kingdom of God works. It always starts small, but it has the power to grow into something that is so beautiful. Now, let me just apply this to your life for just a moment. Because there are so many ways that living in God's kingdom, living as a Christian, seems so small and so mundane and so insignificant and so powerless, but it isn't. Let's start with the people in your own house, your roommates, your spouse, 
every day, every conversation, you have a chance to listen, to serve, to love, to encourage, to pray for. See, it's like a seed. It just seems so insignificant. It seems so small, but it actually has huge implications. Some of you, you have young children. And you know what you spend your day doing? Wiping people's bottoms. And wiping their faces because they can't feed themselves very well. And you know what they give you in return? They just want more. They don't say, they don't say thank you yet. They're going to get there, I promise. You're going to get some thank yous one day. But you don't have that right now. And in the moment, see, in, the, in these moments, you're never thinking, this matters. But you know what you're doing? You are providing a context in which a child is growing up in a safe place, which is something that many children in this city do not have. And you are providing for their physical needs and their emotional needs and their spiritual needs as you nurture them in the good news of Jesus. And you are shaping a human being. And in 40 years, their life is going to be different because of you. It looks like nothing. Oh, but it is so significant. How about forgiveness? Having the humility to seek forgiveness when you wrong someone. Having the grace to offer it to someone who has wronged you. It looks so insignificant, but it has the power to change a friendship. It has the power to change a marriage. And some of you, this is what you need in your marriage. You need to learn to forgive. It is like a seed that can produce such fruit in your marriage. Think about the spiritual disciplines. Sabbath. Meditating on God's word. Prayer. I don't know about you, but most of the time I do these things, I don't walk away going, that was amazing. No, I walk away going, did anything happen? Did that matter? You see, but you do those things over and over and over again and day in and day out and week in and week out. And you know what happens? God is shaping you into this glorious person that he's made you to be. Here's just one last one. Hospitality. Inviting someone into your home for a meal. And particularly inviting someone into your home who doesn't look like you, who doesn't have the same color of skin as you, who doesn't have the same level of education as you, who doesn't live in the same neighborhood in this city as you, and inviting them to your table. It looks so small. These are the kinds of things that change a city, friends. And this is how the kingdom of God works. We get so caught up in doing big things for God and trying to change the world, but the truth is that God is much more concerned with the small things. And we'll never understand his kingdom until we understand that it's like a seed. It starts small, but it can grow into something incredible. Second point, the kingdom of God feels slow. We see this in the first parable. that Jesus says the kingdom of God, if you look at the text, he says it's like a man who scatters, a, scatters seed on the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Have you ever watched a seed grow? Not fun. <laughs> Takes a little while. Doesn't happen overnight. It's slow. We don't like slow. We like fast. We like fast internet. 
We like fast delivery. We like fast progress in our careers. We like fast friendships. We are not good at waiting. We are not good at waiting. Do you know this about yourself? We're not good at waiting. Why do you think everybody hates the DMV? (laughs) Nobody is just sort of ambivalent about the DMV. Have you ever noticed this? You tell somebody you went to the DMV and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And you're like, oh, oh, it's worse than you even think it is. What, what, you know, what happens inside you when you find yourself standing in the slow checkout lane? You know, I've, I have this little theory about Apple, actually. You know the, the spinning wheel that pops up on your computer when it's like processing? Why do you think they made that so colorful? You know, it's like this happy rainbow wheel. I think they made it look this way because they know we hate waiting so much that they wanted to make it look happy and fun. And that is the exact opposite of what waiting feels like. That wheel looks nothing like how waiting feels. We hate waiting. We're not good at waiting. We like fast. We live in a culture of now. But Jesus says... The kingdom of God is going to feel slow like a seed growing in the ground. Let me just, let's apply this. This is why some of us in this room have grown so disillusioned with God. And some of you, you're, you're teetering and you're thinking about walking away. You're ready to throw in the towel because God is not working fast enough for you. He is not snapping his fingers and answering your prayers to take the cancer away or the depression away or the loneliness away. You've been praying and praying and praying for a spouse and God is not giving it to you. Some of you have been praying and praying and praying that God would change the spouse that you have. And he's not doing it. Some of you have been begging God to help your child. Things have not turned out like you thought in their life. And you're asking God to show up. And he's not doing it fast enough. Some of you have been asking and asking and asking that God would free you from an addiction from a desire, from a struggle, from a habit. And he's not just taking it away. And so you find yourself saying, God, why is it taking so long? Do you not know? Do you not see? Do you not care? God, are you not there? I want you to hear me say something this morning, friends. If this is where you are, God always knows. And God always sees. And God always cares. And God is always there. And God is always working in our waiting. You may not be able to see it, it's like a seed in the ground. You can't see it. You may not be able to feel it. 
And you may not be able to understand it. And this text is actually honest about that. Jesus says in verse 27, look at this. He says, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. Listen to this. Though he does not know how. See, you may not understand how God could be at work. But God is always at work. He is always at work in the darkest places, in the hardest circumstances, and in the most hopeless of situations. I sat with someone in our church just yesterday, hours after they got a devastating diagnosis. You know what they said to me? God is working on me. I mean, you can't fabricate that, friends. And let me tell you, you have got to build this truth deep into your life before the suffering comes. That God is always working in your waiting. And listen to this. He is always working for your good. Always. And that will be the hardest thing that you will ever face as a Christian is trusting that that is true even when you cannot see it. There was a children's book that came out a couple years ago, and it was called The Moon is Always Round. It was written by a seminary professor named Jonathan Gibson. And the genesis of that little book, it's this short little children's book, was this little catechism of three questions and answers that Jonathan wrote for his three-year-old son, Benjamin. And they would say this together. And it goes like this. First question is, what shape is the moon tonight? The moon, here's the answer. The moon is crescent moon or half moon, whatever shape the moon was. What shape is the moon always? The moon is always round. What does that mean? It means that God is always good. And Jonathan and his son Benjamin, they would recite this this little question and answer back and forth to one another. And the point of the catechism was this, was that just like we can't always see the fullness of the moon, we can't always see the goodness of God. But even when you can't see the whole moon, it doesn't mean the moon isn't whole. Even when you can't see the fullness of the moon, it doesn't mean that the moon isn't full. The same is true spiritually. Even when you can't see the goodness of God, it does not mean that God is not good. Even when you can't see how God is working, it doesn't mean that God is not working. Now, little did Jonathan Gibson know how important this little, simple little catechism would become to their entire family. Because several months after he wrote it, after he came up with it, after he and Benjamin started saying it back and forth to one another, Jonathan's wife gave birth to a stillborn daughter. They named her Leela. And when she was born in the hospital, Jonathan went and picked up his son, Benjamin, and he brought him to the hospital to say goodbye to his sister, Leela. And on the way home after the hospital, here's how the conversation went. Benjamin asked, Daddy, will mommy ever grow a baby that wakes up? And his dad said, I don't know. 
And Benjamin asked, why isn't Leela coming home with us? Jesus called her home and she went to him. Well, Dad, will Leela come to us after a day with Jesus in heaven? No, when you meet Jesus, you never want to go anywhere else. Dad, does Leela not like us? She does like us. She just likes Jesus more. Benjamin asked again, but why is Leela not coming home with us? And his dad said, son, I don't really know why. And the car went silent, and Jonathan Gibson talks about how he was choking back tears, but then he remembered the catechism. Benjamin, son, what shape is the moon tonight? The moon is half moon. What shape is the moon always? The moon is always round. Benjamin, what does that mean? It means that God is always good. God is always good. And he is always working for your good. And he is always working in your waiting. And you see, the question is, is what's going to get you and me to believe that? Very hard to believe that if you've ever been through any real suffering. What's going to get you and I to believe that? Let me tell you what's not going to get us there. Naive optimism. That is not going to get you there. See, we have a tendency when, when hard things happen in our lives, when hard things happen in the lives of those around us, we have this tendency, we say this little thing, I think it's like the worst, most deceptive sentence that we have in our human language. We say this, don't worry, things will get better. See, but what if they don't get better? A lot of times they don't get better. What if healing doesn't come? What if God doesn't give you a spouse? What if you stay single for the rest of your life? What if God doesn't fix your marriage or your child? What if financial stability never arrives? What if you've been really wronged, oppressed, violated by someone, and justice never comes in this world? See, what then? How do you trust the goodness of God then? How do you make sense of the kingdom of God then? Well, that brings us to the last point, which is actually the second parable. The kingdom starts small. It feels slow, but this last little parable that Jesus talks about, the kingdom becoming this great tree where the birds of the air find rest and shade in its branches. You know what this is telling us? It's telling that the, king, that the kingdom of God is better than anyone can imagine. Now, I want you to think about this metaphor, this tree, this great future tree that Jesus is talking about, the birds of the air finding rest in its branches. I, it sounds a little abstract. Do you ever read Jesus' words and you're like, it's really beautiful. What does it mean? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of confusing. Um, uh, it's a little hard to understand. And, you know, the truth is, here's the truth. A lot of what Jesus says about the kingdom of God is confusing. Let me just, for example, in Matthew 12, 28, 
Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It has come upon you. That is past tense. In Luke chapter 17, verse 21, he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. That's present tense. But then in Matthew 6, he says, when you pray, pray like this, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that is future tense. It's not yet here. See, that's confusing. I, don't, is that, I mean, I'm from South Carolina, okay? We are low on the education list, but I'm smart enough to know that's confusing. Is the kingdom of God something that has happened? Is it something that is happening? Or is it something that is going to happen? Which is it? Which is it, Jesus? And Jesus says, the answer is yes. The New Testament teaches us that when Jesus came into this world, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. That into a dark and hurting and broken world, he brought the light and the life of God's rule and God's reign. And this is why when Jesus showed up on the scene, he said things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. See, it's come. But that brings us back to the original question. If the kingdom of God has already come, then why is the world still so messed up? And if the kingdom of God has come, then why is my life so messed up? And here's the answer. The answer is because the kingdom of God has come, but it has not come in full. See, it's already here, but it's not yet fully here. It's here in seed form. But one day that seed is going to become this great tree. What is this tree that Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 4? This tree where all the birds of the air find rest and shade in his branches. I think it's really interesting that Jesus says this seed will become the largest of all garden plants. If you look at verse 32, this is really interesting. He says, he says it's a garden plant. Now, a mustard seed was something that you planted in a garden. And it was usually the largest thing in a garden. It grew to about 10 to 15 feet high. Now, that's high. But that's not nearly as high as like a redwood tree. You say, why didn't Jesus choose something bigger? Like, why didn't he go all the way, you know? Why didn't he, why didn't he choose something that, that this giant thing that grows in the forest? Why did he settle for the biggest thing that you would grow in a garden? And here's what I think. I think Jesus is pointing us to another garden. He's pointing us to the first garden. In Genesis chapter 2, we find the Garden of Eden. And you know what it was? It was paradise. It was, it was, it was everything was, it was a world where everything was the way that our hearts longed for them to be. We were close to God. God always felt close. There were never these times where it felt like God was far away or non-existent. We were close to God. We were close to one another. There was no relational breakdown. There wasn't bitterness. There wasn't resentment. There wasn't division. And creation was whole. 
There was no sickness. There was no cancer. There was no disease. There was no evil. There was no injustice. You know what there was? Joy, laughter, love, goodness, beauty. And you know what else there was? In that garden? A tree. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says that in the very middle of the garden was the tree of life. See, but in Genesis chapter 3, we lost it. We lost the tree. We lost God's presence. We lost paradise. We lost the world that we were built for. Why did we lose it? We lost it because we doubted the goodness of God, which is something you and I do every day. And we trusted in our own ways rather than trusting in his. And you see, ever since we lost it, we've been trying to get it back. That's the story of, of human history, actually. How do we create a just world? How do we create a world where there is no death anymore? How do we create a world where everything is working the way that it was meant to be? We've been trying to get it back. Will we ever get it back? The tree of life that shows up in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 shows up one more time in the whole Bible. You only find it on one other page. You know where it is? It's on the last page. Revelation chapter 22. Let me just, let me just read about it for you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And listen to this. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The healing of the world. That's what it's talking about. No longer will there be any curse the throne of God, see that's kingdom language, that means the kingdom of God, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. That's a metaphor for suffering. And they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Will we ever get it back? Christianity says yes. Because one day, King Jesus is going to return. And you know what's going to happen? His kingdom will come fully and finally. And all things will be made new. And everything sad will become untrue. And God is going to heal the world. I love the way that Tolkien puts this in The Lord of the Rings. The hands of the king are healing hands. <laughs> See, so much of the time, we want God to just show up and fix a couple things in our life. But God wants to heal the world. Aren't you glad God wants something so much bigger for us than we want for ourselves? You should be saying yes to that. God wants his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. He wants to rid the world of evil and injustice and of poverty and hunger and tent encampments and mental illness and death and disease and broken homes. 
and broken neighborhoods and broken cities. And he wants to restore what we had in Eden, and he wants to give every single one of us the world that we long for and the world that we were built for. And Christianity says that it's coming. And some of you are saying, you know, that sounds nice, but it also sounds like a fairy tale. You know, it sounds a little too good to be true. But you see, Christianity offers us something, friends, that goes so far beyond just wishful thinking and naive optimism this morning. It offers us a future hope that is sure and certain because of a past reality. And that reality is what we find at this table, actually. In John 12, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then he says this, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. This is so interesting. Jesus is talking about his cross and his death where he will be buried into the ground. Let me ask you a question. What was God doing on the cross? I will tell you that in the moment, it looked like God was doing nothing. It did not look like God was good and it did not look like God was working. You know how it looked? It looked small. There was a naked Jewish man writhing on a cross. And it felt slow. How in the world could this make any difference? But you know what God was doing? Something beyond what anyone could have imagined. He was accomplishing salvation for the world. Salvation for you. Salvation for me. And he was establishing his kingdom Because three days later, Jesus would walk out of a tomb to show us that sin and death and evil do not have the last word, and that they have been defeated, and that one day they will be no more. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know this king? There is no king like this king. Do you know this king? Have you come into his kingdom? And if not, here's the good news. You can today. You can right now. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. God wants you in his kingdom. But Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, there's only one way you can come. He says you have to come like a child. You know what that means? It means that you come saying, God, I am weak. And I am helpless. And there is nothing that I can do to save myself. Nothing I've done, nothing I could ever do to merit your love and grace. And so I come looking to you as my good father. And I come looking to Jesus who loved me so much that he gave himself for me so that I might know you and be welcomed into your kingdom. I want you to know this morning, if you've actually never accepted that invitation, maybe it is the reason that God has you here. And maybe you have been thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And right now is the moment. I want you to know something else. Some of you in this room this morning, 
There's incredible suffering in your life. And you come to this table in tears this morning. And God invites you, and he wants to hold out the greatest hope that you could ever have, which is one day he will wipe all of your tears away. And his kingdom will fully and finally come, and all things will be made new. That is the hope of this seemingly small, insignificant table. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for your return. We pray that you would come quickly. But as we are waiting, would you help us to see at this table that you are good. You are always good even when we cannot see it. And that you are always working even when we cannot feel it. Give us faith to believe these things as we eat and drink together today. In Christ's name, amen.